Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? If you are a Republican voter and you truly believe Democrats are pedophiles and satanic blood drinking worshipers, what isn't justified in stopping somebody like that, right? I mean, Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. So, not sure if you know this, but there is an election coming up very soon. How is it only a month away? Um, but being that that is the reality... I thought it would make sense to bring on a few folks over these next few weeks that really sit uh, at the convergence of tech and politics. Now, you don't need me to tell you that technology and social media in particular are really at the heart of this election, the last election, and it appears really kind of every election going forward. But a lot has changed since 2016, which is, of course, when the Democrats and Hillary Clinton were really caught flat-footed and frankly outsmarted outspent online and that is before we even get to the more nefarious stuff like Cambridge Analytica and the voter suppression campaigns that were carried out online and and recently exposed uh, in UK uh, by Channel 4. So what has changed? Well I have just the person to tell us. Shomik Dutta worked on both Obama campaigns. He worked in the White House And then after Obama left, he went off and did his own thing as an investor. And then Donald Trump got elected. And within days of that happening, Duta and his co-founder, Betsy Hoover, set up Higher Ground Labs, which is an investment firm. And it's backed by Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn, as well as a bunch of other prominent techies and people kind of with money on the left to create basically the democratic version of the huge digital election machine that the Republicans had built and used to such great effect in 2016. So Duto has been very busy, and given that we are just a month out, I figured it would be a good time to have him on to talk about what he's been up to, what he's investing in, which includes everything from kind of data analytics and election logistics to social media operators and everything in between. To just really under, try to understand what are these technologies, what is this kind of ecosystem that has been built up, what does it look like, and how much of it is now being used by the Biden campaign and thousands of other uh, candidates around the U.S., and why he thinks all of that has put the Democrats in a much better place to unseat Trump along with a bunch of other folks all across the country. It's a really fascinating snapshot of what 
electioneering looks like in 2020 and how technology is really kind of just burrowing right into the heart of not only voting and politics, but kind of democracy. Anyhow, it is a fascinating conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it. So here he is, Shomik Duta, founder of Higher Ground Labs. Enjoy. So I was on your website. And the tagline is, we're in the business of saving democracy. So I figured that's a good place to start. We're just trying to get some clicks and views, man. That's all. (laughs) So before we get to where we are right now, can you just talk about Higher Ground Labs? Let's give like the quick kind of history, and then we'll get to the present day and what is happening now. So Higher Ground Labs is a fund that was started by myself and my co-founder, Betsy Hoover. We started just a couple weeks after the 2016 election. And we started Higher Ground Labs because we thought that there was a whole lot of innovation needed in a small amount of time to help update the way Democrats campaign. You know, when I was a late, I started working in politics in 2003 Mm -hmm. and I worked on both Obama campaigns. I've worked on governor's races and Senate races. And when I, as a lay volunteer for the Hillary campaign, just showed up to help at the very end, I went to Nevada to go canvas. They handed me the same clipboard, the same number two pencil the same paper packets that I had used in 2003. And the world has changed. We have smartphones in our pockets. There's all this new stuff that consumers are used to, but it doesn't, it it had not yet reached political campaigns as quickly as it ought to have. And so we wanted to build a place where interesting technologists, entrepreneurs, political operatives, investors could all work together to quickly spin up new ideas, new software that could power not just one or two campaigns, but thousands of campaigns frictionlessly by extending itself at at almost no cost to the next campaign uh, easily. And so Higher Ground Labs started with that mission in mind. We today have raised $17 million and have 36 technology startups that serve thousands of campaigns, including the Joe Biden campaign, every House race in the country, every Senate race in the country, and that sort of thing. So you started a couple weeks after the last election. Why? What was the why there? Because this is before this is before we found out about Cambridge Analytica and just people still hadn't quite processed the role of Facebook and social media and the Trump campaign and how it utilized those things. Mm-hmm. It feels like it was all still kind of fresh and everybody was in freakout mode. Maybe you guys were just in freakout mode. You know, nothing really clarifies the mind like losing. And so <laughs> the Republicans went through this, right? In 2012, they had lost their second straight national election. Mm. Republican funders led by the Koch brothers got together and said, what do we do? We are behind. The Obama campaign had innovated in all these interesting ways and we have not. What do we do about that? And we went through a similar process, right? What the Koch brothers concluded after the 2012 elections was that you had to externalize innovation outside of the daily cycles of politics. It's really that even during the campaign, it was abundantly clear the Trump campaign was outspending on digital and it did have a formidable data platform that was assembled by the Koch brothers in the heels of was the Was this i360? i360, exactly. And, right. and that was an external corporation. Can you just explain what that was? Sorry. Yeah. You know, the single most important source of truth in politics is who the voters are, where they live, and how to contact them. That is the lifeblood of a campaign is right. to reach those folks. And it turns out it's actually quite hard to understand who a person is offline and online. I know who Danny Forston is, 
the host of this podcast, I know his address yeah. in Oakland, but it's not all immediately clear to me what your IP address, what your cell phone number is. And so we have in the Democratic Party, we had two ecosystems of online information and offline information. And in the Republican Party, they had united those things in a mm. for-profit corporation called I360, which the Koch brothers ran as a business, which afforded them the freedom to be able to sell this data to the coordinated campaigns of the Republican Party and the so-called uncoordinated activity of the Republican Party, the super PACs and the C4s and all of the sort of dark money that Jane Mayer has written so much about. Those mm. ecosystems were united through this pillar of data in one right. place called I360. So that was a massive advantage to the Trump campaign. And it spawned our own realization that for-profit companies should occupy this unique space in politics, which, which are able to quickly raise money from private investors who can take the risk of trying new things and can also take the benefit when those new things work so that we can keep pushing boundaries quickly and efficiently in how we campaign. What's a little confusing to me as a layperson not in politics is that the Obama campaign, the campaigns you worked on, they were kind of feted for being really innovative and really online and really using Facebook. I mean, he was the first Facebook president. So what happened? Yeah, this is such an important point and such an interesting question. There's two things that happened, Dan. The first is every four years, presidential campaigns are like multi-billion dollar startups that are built out of thin air. They have a clear expiry date, unlike all other mm. companies. You know, a date at which your business is going out of business. Yep. And after that date, everybody disappears like clockwork. And so one of the challenges is when you build really interesting things and learn new things on these campaigns, it is the worst place to be able to share those findings because the day after the campaign, the business ends, everybody goes on to other things. And most importantly, right. the second point is there is a legal restriction. When you build technology or build an innovation on a campaign, you are legally prohibited from sharing that out and giving it away to other campaigns. That constitutes an in-kind contribution really? from the FEC's perspective. And so even if the Obama campaign said, I built something called MyBarackObama.com, MyBarackObama.com, which you might remember, it was like the first social mm -hmm. network in politics. They said, we want to give this away to the DNC. It would be legally prohibited from doing so. You must sell it for fair market value, according to the McCain-Feingold uh, campaign finance right. laws. And so if you must build innovation and sell it for fair market value, why not do that outside of campaigns? Why not build that as a sustainable business? Why not try to scale that to as many campaigns as possible? And so the, the, you're absolutely right that the Obama campaign did some of the most you know, sort of memorable innovation in all of politics. But those learnings and those innovations died with the campaign. And then in 2012, many of those things were rebuilt. And again, in 2016, those things were rebuilt. And that was part of the sort of aha moment for us, which was that let's build companies that do this, that can actually strengthen right. and cycle in and cycle out. And so that was part of the sort of, I think, genesis behind why we had so much conviction behind Higher Ground Labs. So it's Tuesday, September 29th, we have the first debate tonight, and we're whatever, five weeks-ish from the election. Having seen kind of all of these factors play out in, you know, going up to the election and then in the elections past, how do you feel about, and not so much about like, you know, is McCain going to win or lose, but just the technological landscape that you guys are involved with and hopefully providing for the Democratic Party? I am proud to tell you, and I know this will sound horribly arrogant, but it is utterly transformed from 2016. We are in a completely different digital and technology landscape. The tools that are afforded to campaigns today 
are cost effective and they are fundamentally different from what was available in 2016. And I'm incredibly proud of that. I'm proud of our founders. I'm proud of our investors for taking the risks they did. And I'm proud of the uh, campaigns for you know learning new things so quickly. I'll give you some examples. Today, the Higher Ground Labs portfolio, four of those startups are being used by the Biden campaign. Every single US House race and every single US Senate race in the country is using at least three startups. Every down ballot campaign in the country is using at least two startups. Every labor union in the country, an advocacy group, is using at least four higher ground lab startups beyond a certain size. And mm. all of the vote by mail, all of the vote by mail technology, ballot request process, all of it on both the soft side of the Democratic Party, the Biden campaign, and the DNC are relied on by two of our companies. And so I think of the four corners of the 2020 election as the Biden campaign, all of the other elections that are happening vote by mail and voting technology and advocacy and labor as the four corners. And all of those four corners are serviced by multiple high ground lab startups, ranging from volunteer management to data and analytics to online polling to vote by mail technology. It's, it's a remarkable sort of breadth and depth of new stuff that was needed and has been filled by our really talented founders. Can you give an example of something that was kind of like, you know, people will understand like, oh, well, that's interesting. That that wasn't happening before and that it's happening now and that this company is doing it? Yeah, there's a great company in our portfolio called Mobilize America, which is a volunteer management platform for Democratic campaigns and causes. And as simple as it may sound, Democrats had no idea who everybody was that volunteered for them mm. in the last cycle. This was balkanized across you know spreadsheets and names were scribbled down in notes that so-and-so is going to come at this time and they're going to make calls yeah. for us. And it turns out you can have a white labeled SaaS platform that does this all seamlessly, kind of like open table for activism. But right. to the earlier point of legal coordination between the uncoordinated and coordinated sides, because Mobilize is a for-profit SaaS company that can charge the two sides of the market, the people that have audience and the people that need audience, Mobilize is able to transfer data from media companies like Crooked Media and send their listeners to the nearest critical battleground campaign and shift them to action. That technology, Mobilize America, is now being relied upon by thousands of Democratic campaigns. Every single Senate race, House race, down ballot race, the Biden campaign, every presidential primary campaign relied upon Mobilize America. It now has over 3.4 million users, volunteers on the platform that have signed up mm. for over 9 million shifts. Everything from debate watch parties to texting banks, phone banks, canvassing. You can imagine in the age of a pandemic, it is hard to understand where to go and what to do safely. Yeah. And Mobilize is now shifting those people in a distributed manner to where they're most needed, which is an incredibly powerful thing that did not exist before Higher Ground Labs and before these two founders, Alfred and Allen, got to work. Is there an equivalent of I360 on the Democratic side? There is. It is run by a very talented woman named Lindsay Shu Cortez, and it's called the DDX. And the DDX was the brainchild of some of the smartest folks in Democratic politics, in part thanks to Rafi Krikorian, who is the former CTO of the DNC, the current CTO of the DNC, Nell Thomas, and Lindsay Shu Cortez, and a woman named Kat Atwater. All of them formed this sort of brain trust for the equivalent of the I360. And for any funders that are listening, uh, the DDX is one of the most important sort of infrastructure projects in the Democratic Party. And we certainly hope that they continue to get funding and continue to exist because what the DDX allows for is for your information. If you, Danny, volunteered to yeah. a campaign that you are supporting Democrats, then we can stop bombarding you with mail, texts, phone calls, and that information that Danny is who he says he is, and Danny has identified as a Biden supporter, 
was previously unable to be shared across the uncoordinated mm. side and the coordinated side, which means sometimes we were talking, yelling at the same person up to eight times a day, not realizing that other groups already checked that box. And so it is a huge resource efficiency for the movement to have the DDX in place. How long has that been around now? It's been around for about a year and a half now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of, from where you sit, the playing field has been leveled-ish between the two sides. G- given where we were, where things were in 2016, where kind of notoriously Trump went all in on Facebook and Hillary didn't and you know everything that came from that. I, I think so. I think that it's really a credit to a couple of pieces of the ecosystem. There's a company called Every Action, which took on an enormous amount of funding from a growth equity fund called Insight. And it allowed Every Action to update its platform. It sunk tens of millions of dollars into its offering, which is a at its core, a CRM for democratic campaigns and causes. I give them a lot of credit for the amount of work they've done in the last couple of mm. years to step up their offering. I give the Democratic donor class an enormous amount of credit for quickly putting money into technology and innovation. And really these founders, these incredible entrepreneurs who could be doing anything. You know, we have an online polling technology called Change Research, founded by the founding data scientists at PayPal and at LinkedIn. You know, this this data oh, scientist really? could have been doing anything, and he sort of dropped his life to build this online polling technology. Most polls cost about $40,000 and take a week to run. His polling technology costs around $3,000 and can be done in 24 hours, and it's just as accurate. So this is transformative stuff, and it wouldn't be done without really talented technologists sort of jumping into the fray and building the stuff that's actually needed, not the sort of sexy bells and whistles we sometimes get distracted yeah. by. And um, how much of that money is coming from our side of the country from from California and specifically Silicon Valley because I know having lived here for the past now 4 years you know there's a kind of for most people and especially the people in power and a lot of like the workforces of the big um social media companies etc there's kind of a bit of a horror that this thing that they built ended up leading to somebody for a lot of people doesn't represent them I mean, because you, you guys got some money from Reed Hoffman. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And who, el- who else has funded you guys? You know, we've had a lot of success uh, with Silicon Valley investors who are sort of closely attuned to democratic politics. And Reed Hoffman has really led the way, not just for Higher Ground Labs, but for most of the significant innovations in the Democratic Party have been led by Reed, Reed in the last couple of years. And I give really? him his team. He has this team of consultants led by Dimitri Melhorn and Tamar, who are just incredible and have been, you know, at the forefront. They're willing to take risks. They're taking sort of uh, private money and trying stuff. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but they learn from it quickly. They euthanize the things that don't work and they scale the things that do. And we're lucky to be one of the groups that they've helped scale. And we've had other investors like Ron Conway and Chris Saka, who have really jumped in with both feet and helped this place be the success it is. But I have to say, it's still, you know, uh, sort of drop in the bucket compared to the amount yeah. of funding that Republicans are able to amass. Well, that's what I was going to say, because you're talking about, I think you said $17 million. The Koch brothers have billions. Yep. They've put hundreds of millions every cycle to work. And part of this is like, they have a great alignment, right? They are pulling carbon out of the ground and setting it on fire. And uh, that they, when the Republicans win, they're able to pull more stuff out of the earth and set it on fire to make money. Uh, and there, you don't see the same alignment with Democrats, right? If Democrats win, Reed Hoffman will pay higher taxes, and there's no material outcome that changes Microsoft's 
you know, he's on the board of Microsoft. Nothing changes for Microsoft beneficially yeah. necessarily. But with Republicans, when you have a coal magnate or, or a poultry farmer, uh, the biggest meat processing company in the country, you know, th- those things are directly benefited by EPA regulations and FDA regulations. Yeah. And so you see this sort of dark alignment in the Republican Party's donor class that you don't with Democratic donors. And as a result, you don't see as much transactional money put into Democratic campaigns. Um, but that right. being said, you do have a lot of folks that care deeply about this country, and they've really stepped up this cycle to be helpful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And so, uh, and I sent you a link to this report that came out this week in the UK, this past weekend, which was Channel 4 in the UK got hold of what appears to just be the psychographic profiles that Cambridge Analytica made of all these different voters in in America and specifically where they, they would label people like deterrence, like they're trying to deter mainly black and brown people from voting. So targeting them with ads that would basically yep. discourage them from coming out to vote. Yep. And it appears, I mean, it's a correlation. It's not necessarily direct causation, but it appears that a lot of these people who, a lot of these groups who were targeted didn't come out. And maybe part of that's due to Hillary and who she was as a candidate. Part of it is probably this stuff. But how do you, you're building up this whole ecosystem of kind of, we'll call it election tech, democracy tech. Are you all concerned that, you know, that something similar will happen amongst these companies or using all of this data that we now have, you know, from both parties? How do, how do you ensure that it is not used for ill? Or does that keep you up at night? You know, I think this starts with, the sort of personality and ethos of the founders, what is motivating them. And candidly, we are we so carefully screen our founders for this kinds of stuff. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, we're not going to be Pollyannish. We're not going to unilaterally disarm. Uh, we are going to press advantage in part because the future of the country is at, at stake. And this is an, an incredibly important election. And mm. we're not going to unilaterally disarm or disadvantage ourselves. But we are going to follow the letter of the law. We are going to respect PII. We, are, we don't have GDPR in this country, obviously, but we have something closer to it in the California privacy bill and Washington state yeah. privacy bills. And our, com- our companies operate in strict accordance. But it's really what's motivating the founder. And if, and if the founders are well motivated to respect voters, to not sort of practice in the dark arts of like preying upon someone's worst fears um, Mm. and desires, but rather sort of operating in the light and making sure that we move people to a higher calling in an ethical way. I think great things can happen. And we have invested in companies that do help understand the psychographics and psychoanalytics of a person to understand what motivates them and communicate with them in a way that creates some emotional resonance. But uh, I, I think what the I think some of the Cambridge Analytica stuff is frankly overstated. Um, yeah. You know, victory has a thousand sons and uh, defeats a lonely orphan. And so mm. there were a lot of things that, you know, swayed the 2016 election. And it's very hard to sit here and say that, you know, something that had a lot of uh, a social graph on Facebook likes was the driver more than something like the Jim Comey announcement. But look, I, I do think this will be a constant back and forth. Uh, and 
in the same way that like, you know, the catapult was a response to a higher wall in medieval warfare, you will have call and response and digital offensive capabilities and defensive capabilities. And it's important that we don't ever prey on people's worst sort of base desires or uh, use personal information in ways that feels unseemly, uh, while also ensuring that we are fully competitive with the other side in delivering the best message to the right people at the right time. Is there a view in your world, politics, I mean, around the, the utility, to your point, of psychographics, of really kind of poking someone's lizard brain? Does that matter when it comes to, you know, the business of voting and getting the person in that you want to get in? You know, I, I would say you know, sort of tickling them down the brainstem is not something that's incredibly exciting to me. And I don't, don't think it's something that we should strive to do. I do think understanding the way somebody views the world and mm. communicating in a way that makes your message most receptive to them is fair game. And so the progress we've made in natural language processing and being able to ask people to describe their feelings on issues in their own words and to scale up the insights of how people are thinking about issues so that you can reach them most effectively is important. And I'll give you a great example. One of our most exciting companies was working with a women's reproductive rights organization, which was looking at college age suburban women in the South to understand why they couldn't reach them as effectively. And so this company just asked, you know, 50,000 college educated suburban swing voters, their thoughts on choice. And it turns out that while almost all of the women supported a woman's right to choose, they felt some sadness and confliction around the issue. And this was volunteered in the language they were using, and it's picked up in the emotional resonance they were using. And so this company then looked at the language that the Women's Reproductive Rights Group was using to market, and they found that it was a lot of anger and indignation in the language. And they said, look, you're basically yelling at sad people right now. You're not approaching them in the mm. framework through which they view the issue. And so I think of that stuff as, and, and, and when they did, they saw an incredible results in a short period of time. And so When they the changed is, how they delivered the message. That's right. That's right. And so I don't view that as, you know, a race down someone's brain cell, brainstem to the sort of reptilian part of the brain. I think of that as a really thoughtful way of approaching somebody on an issue to have the best resonance and the best sort of connection. And I think that's fair game and something that's very important because, you know, when you poll the country, three quarters of the country agrees with us on about 90 percent of the issues. But when it comes to what it means to be a Democrat, we lose them. And so clearly something's wrong in the way we're talking to them about issues, not in the issue itself, but in the way we yeah. approach. And so it's important we get that right. Higher ground is that you guys are for-profit. We are operating as an impact fund, yeah, a for-profit fund with the idea being that, you know, Democrats routinely spend billions of dollars every couple of years. Most of it goes on television, but there is this increased need, this heightened need to reach people through other screens, through software to help manage the spending, manage the outreach, manage the targeting, and all of that needs to be serviced. And when we can win in gains from great bets, we can turn around and recycle that capital and invest in more great things. So is it, is it good business? To invest in, you know, whatever you want to call it, democracy tech, election tech, you know, because we're out here, it's like a venture capital fund, you have a 10 year fund, you want 100x whatever returns. Is this a different beast? This is different. This is a for-profit impact investment. I think we are 
committed to delivering returns to investors, but we are equally committed to ensuring that those investment dollars have a positive impact, a social impact. And, and we, we carefully measure both. To date, we've had acquisitions out of the portfolio. You have seen an increased interest in private equity funds in this space, in part because of the secular shifts that are happening in spending. We had a 786% increase in digital spending in politics in just the last couple of years. You've had really, really? well-run companies like Every Action take on uh, millions of dollars of investment from places like Insight. And so there is a defensible business to be run here. Our average valuation upon entry into our companies is a $3 million valuation. We invest with a lot of discipline. And if I can take a company from a $3 million valuation to a $20 million outcome, I'm very happy. While also ensuring you know, that we are building software that thousands of campaigns can use. You know, In the past, the way this worked is you'd get a really smart pollster and they'd sell their brain to a couple campaigns as a consultant. And then you'd build a great yeah. business that way. But now you can take your insight and sell it to thousands of campaigns frictionlessly. And while that's so obvious that software is eating every part of the world, software has been slower to eat parts of the political world. And so that's where I think some accelerator capital can really help get some new ideas in the field fast. And just thinking about the broader context here, you mentioned TV and how that's where most of the money goes. From where you sit again, and maybe you're biased because you are doing what you're doing, but do you have a view on whether it's still just all about TV, ultimately? Is TV like, you know, the, the thing you have to quote unquote win? Or how important a battleground is tech now? And do you think it will be as we look at this going forward? You know, I think it is tech and particularly social media is the battleground, particularly because for young people who will now represent 18 to millennials and Gen Zers will represent 40% of the electorate. They are spending mm. upwards of three to four hours per day on social media networks. 75% of them say they get their primary news from social media. And, and most importantly, there are rules changing around what, what kind of political advertising can be done on digital. And so we're going to need a host of new platforms that allow peers to share ideas and reach out to each other on social networks. And we've invested heavily behind this. We have invested in a couple of relational organizing companies that help you find your friends in battleground states and have communications with them at scale across the social networks, across text and email and phone. Because, so like political social networks, basically. Uh, it, it's leveraging all the existing social networks, but allowing yeah. people to communicate with each other on them through this platform and to share that information with campaigns so the campaigns can grow their audience. What's that called? So the most successful one is called Outvote. It is now a company that the Biden campaign is relying on, the every house race in the country is relying on, and it really just helps friends talk to friends about politics. And it's been proven time and again that this is the most effective form of the outreach. There was a study done by the Analyst Institute, which looked at every mode of political communication, texts, emails, mail, digital ads, television ads, they found a message from a friend outperformed all of those by several standard deviations. And so we have to focus on that, right? We have to use the social trust that exists between people and the diminished social trust that exists between political parties, say, and people, and use the things that work. And what works is a message from a friend is like a breath of fresh air in your mm. junk email box and your texts that are filled with, you know, unsolicited commercial texts from random marketers. You need, you love your friends. You want to hear from them. And so we have to lean into that and help campaigns adjust their programs accordingly. And do you have a sense of, you know, because obviously Facebook is in the eye of the storm here in terms of everybody's keeping a very close eye on, you know, what happens or doesn't happen there and on other social media platforms. And they've talked publicly a lot about 
you know, we've invested billions of dollars. We have 30,000 people and ensuring integrity on the website and all of this stuff. Do you have a sense that this time will be better, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase? I don't have much confidence right now in Facebook, nor do I have much confidence that like, I think some of these things are out of, have grown out of control from yeah. the platforms themselves. And, you know, when I read that fake news travels at six or seven times the speed as real news and that just fear and anger generally ripple through these algorithms faster than love and hope, that gives me a lot of pause. The, the thing that I do know we need to do is more Democrats need to be sharing their views and having loud conversations on those platforms. We are, you know, I have, I deleted it, I exited. But I think that's the problem. <laughs> There's been this mass exodus for, of progressives from places like Facebook, and that creates a sort of debt spiral in the quality of content. And the reality is there's still a lot of grandparents on there looking for pictures of their grandkids. And when they're reading that there's a satanic pedophilic cult of blood drinking Democrats, you know, that stuff tickles the brainstem to your point. And there's a reason that that, that kind of completely insane conspiracy theories have grown at 4,000 percent over the last couple of months, 4,000% growth. And what so- What is that? Where does that measure from? That's a Kevin Roos post uh, recently. Oh, okay. Kevin Roos, the New York Times tech reporter, yeah, has yeah. been following yeah. QAnon closely. Well, I was going to say, so I was just been covering the wildfires and I was up in a wildfire zone and talking to some people who had lost their homes and it was horrendous. And they were talking about losing their homes and trying to figure out what they're going to do next. And then it just veered into this new law that was coming that the Democrats are going to impose that's going to change the age of consent for sex to four years old. And we were kind of like, well, no, I mean, come on. That's, that's not true. That's ridiculous. And then somebody else who this man didn't know came and said, oh, yeah, it's kind of like that's what the Democrats are doing. It's happening soon, et cetera. And you start to see the power of things like QAnon and the way it spreads online. It is a, it is a national emergency. And, you know, if you are a Republican voter, and you truly believe Democrats are pedophiles and satanic blood-drinking worshipers, what isn't justified in stopping somebody like that, right? I mean, yeah. And so, you know, it, it is clear that this stuff is polarizing. It's clear that it's going to engender more violence. And it's also clear that our best messengers are regular people that can reach out to each other and have these difficult conversations. And we, we have not done enough there yet. And so I hope that, I hope things like outvote, things that encourage more peer-to-peer -peer communication um, will help because, you know, one of the sort of hidden vectors of this is just loneliness and social isolation. And when mm. people feel lonely and are isolated in their screens, bad things happen. And so uh, things that engender a little more social connection, a feeling of belonging, I think uh, are important. And I can't believe we've gone 30 plus minutes and not talked about COVID, but <laughs> you're talking about loneliness and that made me think of COVID. Is there anything you guys are doing or any of the, your companies that are working on in terms of just, because again, it feels like a lot of this is just the kind of blocking and tackling of organization and outreach and just finding people, et cetera. Are you doing anything on the, just in terms of the actual getting people to vote in a time of pandemic, whether that's you know, some kind of enabling technology helps people find polling stations or I don't know, is, is, is that something that you guys are involved in? Oh, deeply involved. Two, two of our most exciting companies are at the heart of all of the vote by mail technology offering that will happen in the Democratic Party. One is called Ballot Ready, which is one of the only 
complete data sets of every person running for every office in every state in the country. And as simple mm. as that sounds, it turns out there are 500,000 people that run for office every year. And it is 500, very hard. 500,000? 500,000. We tend to track the 10,000 most exciting yeah. ones, but there are lots of races. And it, in fact, is so complicated that Ballot Ready found that about a third of Democrats were leaving the real down ballot entries blank for fear of making a mistake yeah. because they didn't know better. And so Ballot Ready has this full offering. What they, They've chased down, you know, election board supervisors in small counties in Missouri who often have the candidates on floppy disks and have built API connections now to sort of pull that data in reliably. And so they're being relied on by thousands of causes and campaigns because they have the best data on who's running in what mm. offices, where your polling location is, how you can vote, how you can request a vote by mail. And sometimes those rules are idiosyncratic to different county boards of elections, yeah. all of which Ballot Ready has tracked closely. Similarly, another company in our portfolio called Campaign OS has built a similar offering for vote by mail. Campaign OS is founded by a former Army Ranger named Jeremy Smith and is led also by a woman named Sarah Jackal, who's the former general counsel of vote.org. They've built this incredible experience to request a vote by mail, to share data back with the campaign and cause, to track that envelope from everywhere it goes to make sure it gets returned in time. And so these are going to be the beating hearts of a lot of programs being run in the time of COVID are incredibly important. And then all of the outreach to your point, you know, the, the lifeblood of campaigns is knocking on doors and making yeah. phone calls. And in a pandemic, it's hard to imagine who the hell is opening their door. And so we have to throw volunteer volunteers into different actions now. And so companies like Mobilize America, which I mentioned earlier, that are going to send people to take certain actions can change those actions. And then the kinds of outreach we do, text messages, uh, messages from friends, all of those will be powered by our portfolio companies. And so, you know, it's a time we're, we're proud of the accomplishments to date, but now it's really important that these things don't get hacked, stay stable, stay resilient. Yeah. And we're spending a lot of time and energy on those things now. And then lastly, you know, the, the foreign interference, the cybersecurity angle, it does feel like that is very active and live and pernicious. How good are you feeling about that? Because <laughs> I don't know if you're investing in any companies that are trying to, you know, keep the bat, the foreign actors out, but it does feel like that's kind of like the conspiracy theory. It's almost an impossibility. If we are not constantly paranoid, we are doing it wrong. We should be absolutely paranoid and we should be following best practices. That means things as simple as two-factor authentication. That means things as complicated as bug bounty programs where you invite white hat hackers to come attack your networks and find vulnerabilities. But it needs to be an ongoing paranoia constantly because it is not just Russia. There are multiple foreign countries constantly trying to interfere. And, and it's easier because software makes everything easier. That's right. You know. That's right. And it's not a reason to go back to clipboards. We just have to learn to live in the new world uh, and do it as efficiently and safely as possible. Um, so how are you feeling? Five weeks away. Honestly, I think the dynamics of the race are fairly stable and I feel very good. I would way rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump right now. And I think our job is to make sure that people who want to vote are able to safely vote. I think the amount of voter suppression headed for yes. uh, battleground states is going to be just galling and shameless. And the more money that funders can provide to groups like Fair Fight, to, to lawyers like Mark Elias, 
the better because we sometimes spend up to $25 to get somebody to the voting booth and then spend under a dollar to keep them there and make sure they can perform their civic duty. And so, you know, I think- What do you mean they get, because they get there and they get turned to well because they don't have the right ID, for example. That's right. That's right. And, you know, Trump has openly invited poll watchers to show up at some of these sites. We had Tea Partiers showing up with armed assault rifles in polling locations in Virginia in 2017 and 2018. So, I mean, I think- there has, there's a potential for a lot of chaos, and it's important to educate and protect our voters and give them options to vote and to make sure that those votes are counted. Just on that point, voter suppression, because I do feel like that's a big thing, especially with COVID. Is there one company or one thing that your companies are doing that's gonna, that is directly involved in that fight? You know, we are not as involved. I think uh, Fair Fight is probably one of the most meaningful organizations that's taken on a big chunk of that responsibility. There's also an attorney named Mark Elias who has been filing lawsuits in multiple battleground states on behalf of of voters to make sure that their voices can be heard. And those are the uh, efforts I would be watching very closely. And and as well as uh, Perkins Coie, which is a formidable Democratic law firm, uh, has been running a lot of interesting work and actually building some technology around this as well. Well, we shall see. I'll be uh, I'll be eagerly watching the the debate tonight. How do you, you hold know? your breath for ninety minutes, Danny? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, look, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. It's uh, it's fascinating, and perhaps we can do a um, a post mortem in November and see how things everything went. Love to do it. All right. Thanks, Danny. Great. Thank you very much. Take care. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Shomik for taking the time to speak. And I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen. Um, As I said, over the next few weeks, I'm going to try to sprinkle in a few more companies and folks kind of in this world because I just think it's relevant and it's interesting, especially in these kind of crazy times. But we'll uh, we'll be doing that and lots of other stuff. So keep your eyes on the feed. And thank you again for listening. I will be writing about some of this stuff in this weekend's Sunday Times, so do check that out at thetimes.co.uk. You can also tweet at me, at Danny Fortson. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. I hope you have a fabulous weekend. And as I often say these days, stay safe and stay sane. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.